Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome. Turning your Bibles to chapter 2 of Hebrews, and we're going to continue on. As I was studying in the book of Hebrews, I, uh, I was thinking, wow, this goes way beyond the basic gospel message and way beyond the fundamental Christian doctrines. It's, it's some real meaty stuff in here, and I feel like, I kind of feel like Paul Harvey up here saying, now let me tell you the rest of the story. You know, the rest of the story about what what God has accomplished by sending his son into the world to become like us, to become one of us, to share in our humanity so that now we can become like him and share in his glory. So some of the questions that are answered here um, in chapter two are why was it necessary for the son of God to become a man? Why was he made to be one of us, to be made like us? Mankind who was created a little lower than the angels? What's the big deal about the humanity of Jesus? So these are the kind of questions that are being answered in the second chapter of Hebrews. So let's pray a moment. God, we pray that you would bless our time in your word. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what your spirit would say to us, your church. We just want to hear from you, Lord. And so we commit our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So actually in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we're, giving, we're given four reasons for the humanity of Jesus and how his humanity allowed him to accomplish what angels never could. So we need to go back just a little bit and lay the foundation. I'd like to do a, a little review about uh, what we talked about last week from verses 5 through 9. And uh, again, it's, foundation, it's foundational to what we're going to look at tonight. So Hebrews 2 verse 5. For he has not put the whole the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. And then moving into verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So again tonight, we're going to look at four reasons for the humanity of Jesus and how his humanity allowed him to accomplish what angels never could. Number one, Jesus' humanity enabled him to regain man's lost dominion. It allowed him to recapture man's lost inheritance. We find here that man who was created a little lower than the angels, who's inferior to them because of human limitations, was given a greater destiny than they. And that man is destined to have dominion over God's creation. God intended to give man dominion over all that he had made. Now, some believe this to mean not just the earth, but the entire universe, which is interesting to think about. It all began with what could be called a limited domain. When God told Adam to subdue the earth, man would learn to rule while he himself was ruled by God. 
As long as man remained subject to God, he would be able to exercise dominion over God's creation. David marveled at this as he wrote his psalm, that man was given privileges higher than the angels. God had never promised that they would reign in the world to come. It would be the redeemed among men who would rule and reign with Christ. And as we saw last week, we do not see man exercising dominion over God's creation. We do not see things, all things under his feet. Man continues in a present state of futility. And while it remains in the heart of man to regain and exercise dominion, his attempts to do so are feeble at best. Here's a question. Why, why do people climb the highest mountain? Why do people climb Mount Rainier? You know the answer. Because it's there, right? It's because it's in the heart of man to fulfill his destiny to conquer and to subdue. That's why there will always be one more who will risk their life to climb the nearest mountain or the highest peak. I'm not that adventurous. Just give me a helicopter, right? Amen? Who's with me? But there will always be another attempt to go deeper, deeper in the ocean, to go to the next planet in our solar system, or to stay longer at the space station. Now, I've heard that they're planning on uh, selling tickets to Mars and building a community there. Anybody heard that? Now, I also heard that you have to plan to spend the rest of your life there if you go, because there's only one-way tickets available. There's no round-trip flights. So they promised to send shipments of supplies on a regular basis. So anyways, how many of you are ready to sign up for that? Okay, see, there's always one. There's always one or two who are ready to go. So man lost his privilege in the Garden of Eden when he rebelled against God and brought a curse upon himself. Man abdicated and forfeited dominion of the earth to Satan, while he himself became a slave to sin. That's why when Satan was tempting Jesus, it says in Luke 4, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all authority I will give to you and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So Jesus knew that the Father would glorify the Son and give him and those who belong to him dominion over all the earth. As Lowell pointed out a few weeks ago, it, it's prophesied in the scriptures that Jesus would regain man's lost destiny. In Psalm 2, it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So although we do not yet see all things put under man, as it says in verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So Jesus regained the dominion that man had lost. This was accomplished by his death for every man. And by conquering death and destroying the work of the devil, he recaptured man's lost inheritance. He is the God-man who is now in heaven, amen, and has become crowned Lord over all. So we're going to see that the humanity of Jesus was necessary in order to regain man's lost destiny, that what he means in verse 9 when he says, 
This is what he means when he says he brings many sons to glory. And this is what we see played out in Revelations 5. I'd actually like you to turn there. I think it's worth taking a couple minutes to read Revelations chapter 5 because John was in the spirit and allowed to see this heavenly scene that describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who had been slain, having, been de having defeated Satan and having regained man's lost dominion. He alone is worthy to loose the scroll, the scroll, which many believe to be the title deed to the earth. It's a short chapter, but it, it, it's, it's significant in what it portrays regarding what Jesus accomplished by his humanity and his death. So Revelations chapter 5, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loosen its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seen seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. <clears throat> then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are as in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to be to, to him and to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Can you say Amen. Amen. Now, back in Hebrews 2, we see the second reason for the humanity of Jesus becoming a man not only enabled him to regain man's lost dominion or recapture man's lost inheritance and bring many sons to glory, but number two, his humanity also enabled him to identify with our sufferings. <clears throat> Notice again in verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are, are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, the word captain actually means pioneer. It means one who goes before, one who leads the way, or one who blazes the trail and finishes first. Jesus has spoken of this way in other places, um, and I'd like to look at a couple of those for a moment. Flip forward to Hebrews 5. We could do a Bible study on each one of these, but we'll just take a quick peek because we'll cover this in depth later in our study through Hebrews. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. 
In Hebrews 5, starting in verse 6, says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, uh, in Hebrews 12, familiar, a very familiar verse, Jesus is called there the author and finisher of our faith. But back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we find that he's called the captain of our salvation. So again, he's the pioneer who blazed the trail and goes before us. I often quote Warren Wiersbe, and I'd like to do that, do that again here. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, this describes an attitude of faith and not just a single act. When our Lord was here on earth, he lived by faith. The mystery of his divine and human natures is too profound for us to fully understand, but we know that he had to trust his Father in heaven as he lived day by day. The fact that Jesus prayed is evidence that he lived by faith. Our Lord endured far more than, he did, than did all the heroes of faith named in Hebrews 11, and therefore he is a perfect example for us to follow. So you might ask, why does it in Hebrews 2 verse 10 say that Jesus had to be made perfect? Wasn't he already perfect, the perfect sinless son of God? But the word perfect can be translated complete or effective. It refers to what Christ came, became for us. Having lived by faith and in complete obedience to the Father and total dependence on the Holy Spirit. The point that's being made is that Jesus could not have become completely effective and, and a faithful high priest. He could not have become the captain of our salvation or the author and finisher of our faith had he not first become a man, had he not become like us. Because the humanity of Jesus also enabled him to identify with our sufferings. We'll talk more about, about this at the end, how Jesus can now be a merciful and faithful high priest because he knows what we're going through. He experienced our human condition. The grief, the loneliness, the physical pain. He can identify with our weaknesses and our suffering. So not only did he set for us an example of obedience and faith, but he is now interceding for us as our faithful high priest. Able to aid us when we are, are tempted and to grant us grace in our time of need. So again, we'll look a little bit more at this at the end of our study. But notice in verses 11 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So sons to glory speaks of our relationship to the only begotten son of God. We're all very familiar with the phrase children of God. 
John wrote in his gospel, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who, are, to those who believe in his name. In 1 John 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. So we are the children of God. But Hebrews also teaches that we are united with Christ and have become his brethren, in that we are united to him in spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one with him in spirit. I'd like for you to turn to John 17 for, for a moment. Because Jesus spoke about this oneness with him in his priestly prayer. His priestly prayer for all who would believe in him. So John 17, starting in verse 20, says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they all also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved, excuse me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So we are united to him in spirit and have become his brethren. And notice the quotes in Hebrews 2 from, from Psalm 22 where we are referred to as the brethren of Christ. It means we share the same nature. As Peter said, we are partakers of the divine nature. That means we now belong to the same family as the brethren of Christ. There's also a quote there from 2 Samuel 22 in verse 13. It says, I will put my trust in him, emphasizing that becoming a child of God is through faith. You don't sign up to become a, uh, for membership in the family of God. Amen? You don't just sign up. You must be born into the family of God. And this only happens for those who have been saved by grace through faith, who put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and eternal life. And then he quotes from Isaiah 8 which prophetically speaks of believers as his children. He says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So we are united to Christ, united to him in spirit. And we have become children of God with a new nature. So we're children of God and we are also his brethren with whom he will share his inheritance. We are co-heirs with him who has inherited all things. It's awesome to think about. This is something else we see in Hebrews 2, is that Jesus will share his glory with those who belong to him. He's bringing many sons to glory. I mean, here's something I, I could just sit back and, and marvel at, at how much Jesus loves me, how much God loves us, that he would, that he would make you his child, that, that he would uh, make you a brethren 
of his son. That he would share his nature with you. That he would share his glory with you. So that you would rule and reign with him in his kingdom. And share in his dominion over all the earth. He didn't have to do any of that. So just to think about how much God loves us and the, the goodness and the, the, the riches of God's grace is mind-blowing. That he would prepare for us such a glorious inheritance. Amen? So again, we're looking at four reasons for the humanity of Jesus and how his humanity allowed him to accomplish what angels never could. Jesus' humanity enabled him to regain man's lost dominion and to bring many sons to glory. It also enabled him to identify with our sufferings. The third reason for the humanity of Jesus is it enabled him to disarm Satan and deliver us from death. Look at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So we continue to see the distinction between men and angels. Man was made a little lower than the angels. But it's redeemed man who will be reinstated. Who has the greater destiny to rule and reign with Christ. And as his children and as his brethren to share in his glory and his dominion over all God's creation. Christ did not come to save angels. We know that. He came to save man. In order to save us, he had to become one of us. Only then could he die for us and through his death defeat Satan, who had the power of death and held men in bondage all their lives. Now, your Bible may say or or it may use the word destroyed. Has Satan been destroyed? Absolutely not. We know that. We know from the rest of the scriptures, Satan is alive and well on planet earth. He's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. One day he will be bound. One day he will be uh, forever cast into the lake of fire, which God created for the devil and his angels. So what does verse 14 mean? How did Christ defeat Satan? How was he destroyed? As it says, it has to do with the power of death. It has to do with the fear of death, which keeps men in bondage. Remember what God said when Adam and Eve disobeyed. Remember what God said would happen when Adam and Eve disobeyed. When they, if they were to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in that day, you will surely die. Right? Now, what did Satan tell Eve? He said, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what happened? Sin brought judgment, condemnation, and death, just as God had said. So Satan, knowing God's justice and that he must punish sin, Satan got exactly what he wanted for mankind. And that was judgment and death and separation from God. That was the work of the devil. Satan tempted the first Adam and brought death to him and all his descendants. Satan tempted the second Adam and failed. Hallelujah. Jesus, who was called the second Adam, won the victory and destroyed the work of the devil. 
1 John 3 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. As the sinless man, Christ Jesus, through death, destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So how did Jesus destroy the work of Satan? By making a way of salvation for mankind. So that by grace, through faith, he could be saved and receive the gift of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, For, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But what about this fear of death? How are people subject to bondage all their lifetime through the fear of death? This was also part of Satan's agenda. Knowing that sin would bring judgment and death, Satan knew he could control man through fear. He could control man through discouragement and despair and anxiety and doubt. Satan knew he could deceive man into looking to idols, to looking to false gods and false teaching in all his attempts, in all a man's attempts, attempts to save himself. Satan could deceive man. Satan knew that apart from God, man would be vulnerable, vulnerable to demonic influence, to his deceptions and his counterfeits. And that, and that man would believe a lie just like Eve. I think that's the best way to describe false teaching uh, false religions and the cults is that they are Satan's counterfeits. They're masterful counterfeits. They, they teach another Jesus. They present another Savior. But the scriptures teach that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, and it's only through faith in the gospel that people are delivered from the power of Satan. Jesus told Saul that by preaching the gospel, he would open people's eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. So again, the humanity of Jesus enabled him to disarm Satan and deliver us from death. Jesus destroyed the work of the devil, and, all, and, and he saves from all that is related to the fear of death by making a way of salvation and giving us eternal life. Now, number four, his humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest to his people. Notice again in, in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 16, it says, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Then he goes on to explain what he means. Verse 17, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in, that he made him, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So first of all, who are the seed of Abraham? From Romans 9 and other passages, it's clear that the seed of Abraham is referring to those like Abraham have been saved by faith who like Abraham, the father of faith, they have believed God and it was, it was accredited to them as righteousness. These have become the children of God, whose second birth like Isaac was a result of God's grace and God's promise. It says the children of promise, it is those who are counted as children of the seed. So again, it is to us that Jesus gives aid and, it, and he is able to do so because he has become a faithful and merciful high priest. Now, in order to identify with us in our weaknesses and our needs, as it says in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren. 
he became fully man without ever ceasing to be fully God in order that he could experience the infirmities or weaknesses and sufferings of humanity. He went from a helpless babe to a growing child to a maturing teen all the way to manhood and he experienced weariness and hunger and thirst. He knew what it was like to be despised, rejected, mistreated, falsely accused and abandoned. And then finally, the extremes of physical suffering and death, even the death of the cross. Now, I don't believe that God needs to learn anything. How about you? But it says the man Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So it's been said that you don't fully know something until you've experienced it. For example, many of you have, uh, who are here have experienced the grief that comes from, from losing uh, a parent. You've lost a, a mother or a father. Or the grief of losing a spouse or a child. And I can have sympathy and compassion for you and I can pray that you be comforted. But to date, I haven't experienced any of those losses. So I don't really know what you're going through. I can only imagine because I haven't experienced it. But when it comes to knowing your trials and your temptations and the weaknesses of your human condition and the sufferings, Jesus knows. Amen? Because he's experienced it. And as our faithful high priest, he makes intercession for us knowing our weaknesses. He is both, both merciful and faithful. Merciful toward people and faithful toward God. Finally, in verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Here is a, a wonderful word of encouragement for all of us. As a, as a faithful high priest, Jesus is able to come to our aid. So the question I have is, is do we really believe that? Does our prayer life reflect that? What do you do when you're in trouble? Are we ready, are we, you know, are we ready to, to go to the throne of grace and pray? I feel like sometimes I follow the ways of the world and you know, I look for that, a bridge over troubled waters. <laughs> when I could go to the Lord of all creation, you know, who has become my faithful high priest, who himself suffered and is able to aid those who are tried and tempted. Not only is God in sovereign control making sure that I'm, I'm not enduring more than I can handle, but he's right there ready to provide a way of escape when I'm being tempted to sin. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except which is such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear with it. Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. He's right there, ready, ready to lead us out of temptation, to deliver us from evil, to provide us with divine protection, and he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. Amen? Ready to give us grace in our time of need. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful. Thankful, Jesus, that you 
leaving your glory, entering in to your creation, becoming a man, becoming one of us, God. You humbled yourself. You became obedient, obedient even to death, even the death of the cross, that you be, could be, become our merciful and faithful high priest. Lord, we are so thankful that you make intercession for us. And when we sin, you are the advocate with the Father. Lord, how thankful we are that we can, at any time, we can come. By faith, Lord, we can come before your throne of grace to find mercy and and find grace to help in our time of need. Lord, we give you all the glory that is due your name. And what can we give to the Lord for all that he's done for us? We, We can only take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So, Lord, we just give you thanks and we give you glory and we worship your name. And we pray that you continue to speak to our hearts as we fellowship and and worship you and pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.